Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. The FT. Welcome to this edition of World Weekly. I'm Gideon Rachman. This week, we look at the crisis between Russia and the West following the shooting down of a Malaysian Airlines flight over Ukraine, an atrocity that's been widely blamed on pro-Russian separatists. Joining me on the line from Moscow is Catherine Hiller, our bureau chief there, and here in the studio is Neil Buckley, our East Europe editor, who's reported from Ukraine several times in recent months. Catherine, first, you wrote for the FT this morning, and I should say we're speaking on Wednesday, that President Putin is beginning to show the signs of the strain of the crisis. What do you mean by that? Well, you know, one very interesting thing was to watch him addressing the nation at the weekend. The Kremlin put out a recorded video statement. And if you take a look at that, Vladimir Putin, you see there, is is quite different from one you used to seeing. He was quite nervously stepping from one foot to the other, his eyebrows twitching, his eyes blinking, and his face kind of sweaty, and he, he seemed to be very, very angry. And uh, you would start thinking whether this man is uh, getting a bit out of control. And if you look at the way the Russian government has responded to the accusations from the West since the airliner was downed, there's also a sense that they're still trying to find direction, and it's not completely clear what the solution might be. We can clearly see signs of debate or disagreement within the circle of people who are advising Mr. Putin or have played a role in policymaking before. And as we wrote in today's paper, Alexei Kudin, the, the former finance minister, is one of them who is, in a rather interesting way, aired very publicly concerns about the risks for the economy. Kudrin, in fact, is, is talking about the risk of isolation if there are further sanctions, essentially. And is it significant, do you think, that the, the press, which seems pretty tightly controlled at the moment, published those comments? Well, it's not normally dangerous or uh, extremely difficult to get criticism published, but Itatas is not any media. And people I was asking here found it quite significant that they chose to publish this at this point in time. And also for Mr. Kudin himself, who has commented a lot on economic policy decisions in his capacity as head of this NGO he runs. He's done that before, but I don't think he has in recent times formulated criticism in such a systemic way and with such a warning tone overall, both politically and economically. Now, Neil, I mean, I guess if there is a Western strategy, it must be to provoke something like this, that to exert pressure on Russia through sanctions and to see people around Putin kind of forcing the Russians to pull back to be more accommodating in Ukraine. Is this a sign that the strategy might work? Or do you think that, in fact, Russian opinion is pretty solidly behind Vladimir Putin? Well, the Russian strategy, as you say, has been to gradually ratchet up sanctions over time uh, with the aim of changing the calculus uh, of Mr. Putin and um, in the hope of making him decide that the cost of continuing to pursue his current policy is simply too high for the Russian economy and ultimately, uh, therefore, potentially for his political support and him and his system. 
I'm not convinced that uh, that policy is going to work. However, I think Mr. Putin can't afford to be uh, seen to be defeated uh, over this. Uh, the Russian people through uh, the Russian media have been told terrible things about what's happening to uh, their kinfolk in eastern Ukraine and uh, would not want to see Russia therefore uh, suddenly pull back from uh, supporting those people. And Mr. Putin is, uh, you know, his whole image is built around him being a strong man and taking on the West, so it's very difficult for him to retreat. But also a, a loss by the rebels in, uh, in eastern Ukraine, if Russia were to cut off support to them, would mean that Mr. Putin hadn't achieved his overall strategic strategic aims in Ukraine and those aims are to slow down or prevent Ukraine's integration into western structures uh, above all NATO but on the other hand it would appear i mean if the likeliest scenario is that the separatists did indeed shoot down this plane and that it was indeed with a russian supplied missile but that that wasn't what they were meant to do and that seems to me to be the the likeliest I mean, it's a hell of a disaster for Russian foreign policy. So what are Putin's options now? I mean, is the discomfort that Katrin described perhaps a symptom of the fact that they don't have many good options? I think they have um, no good options or few good options. One is to distance themselves from the separatists publicly or privately to cut support to them, but that would then risk a loss by the rebels with the consequences that I um, spelt out before. Another option is to intervene directly militarily themselves. This seems to be an option which Russia is keeping on the table but is very reluctant to use because I think it understands the costs, the costs in the lives of its soldiers, the economic burden of taking that on and of course the cost of what the Western reaction would be. So it may be that Mr Putin will instead continue to try and steer a kind of middle path by allowing sufficient support to the rebels that the conflict in eastern Ukraine bubbles on. But even that is risky because that could still result in, in Western sanctions ratcheting up over time if it's apparent that there is still support flowing and that Mr Putin has failed to stop that. And Catherine, give us a sense of how Russians outside the kind of ruling elite are, are viewing this crisis. Do most of them even accept that the separatists probably did shoot down this plane? No, most of them don't. I'm not aware of any new poll that covers exactly this question, but it seems from our conversations in Moscow and from the way state-led media is discussing this issue that there are a lot of conspiracy theories around and it may be that only a minority of Russians would believe that the rebels shot down the plane. That's partly because of the fact that the government itself, I mean, two days ago, the defense ministry came out and presented, well, a mixture of what it said was evidence that challenged the West's version of what was likely to have happened. And although the, the government has not directly said this is what we believe happened, they have suggested that they might believe or, or people should believe that maybe the Ukrainian military shot it down themselves from the ground or even with a fighter aircraft. So public sentiment here about this is very much like this is just another attempt or, or elaborate conspiracy by the West, especially the United States, to target Russia and to, to attack Russia and blame Russia for lots of things. 
And so, Neil, given that that appears to be the state of Russian public opinion, how do you think an intensification of this crisis through sanctions is likely to play? And what other options might the West have? I think that the the West probably has no option other than to continue to ratchet up sanctions. There is uh, clearly an international revulsion over what has happened. A lot of countries have seen their citizens perish as a result of a conflict they're not involved in. So there will be pressure. But clearly there are also divisions among European countries about how far they're prepared to go. But I think there has to be an effort to engage diplomatically with Russia at the same time. Chancellor Angela Merkel has said this very clearly, among others, that the only way this can be resolved ultimately is through a political and diplomatic process, and we have to engage with Mr. Putin, however difficult a path that may be, she said. So I think there, there needs to be engagement, not just over how to stop the conflict in eastern Ukraine itself, but also on what Ukraine's future status is going to be vis-a-vis NATO and its integration over time into the European Union or coming closer to the European Union. Well, we'll come to that question of what a deal, if if any, might look like in a second. But just give me a sense of the situation in eastern Ukraine itself. I mean, we've had the downing of this plane. Today, there's the stories that a couple of Ukrainian Air Force planes have been shot down. Is it likely to, or how close it is, to, is it now to a full-scale war? I think it is a war in all but name right now. The, I saw reports that the International Committee of the Red Cross is looking at designating it a uh, conflict. Uh, there are all these legal definitions, uh, w- one of which the and the Red Cross has an uh, authority which can determine this. So we, I think it is, to all intents and purposes, a war. A couple of weeks ago, it appeared as though Ukrainian forces were gaining the upper hand because the rebels had been driven out of their stronghold in Slavyansk, which is about 100 kilometres north of the regional capital of Donetsk. That was a big setback for the rebels. And I think they, for, for the first time, opened up the possibility that the Ukrainian military might just win. I think that put Mr. Putin in the same kind of dilemma I described before. And his decision was to up support for the rebels at that point, but not intervene directly. But it may be that precisely because heavier, more sophisticated weapons were coming over the border last week. One of those was used, albeit accidentally, to shoot down MH17. Okay. well, we've obviously got then a a still very dangerous and volatile situation, both on the ground and diplomatically. But you spoke about, in the end, trying to find some sort of accommodation that takes the sting out of this conflict. So let's end by talking about what that might look like. Catherine, if I may... What do you think uh, Russia's bottom line on Ukraine is? And is it your sense that it's anything that might be tolerable to the West? Well, Russia, through its foreign ministry, has said many times what its preferred scenario for politically for Ukraine's future is. I would actually take that at face value. I think it's it's very close to what they actually want. It's what they call a federalization of Ukraine and combination with a kind of a guarantee that Ukraine will never join NATO. And one is kind of the precondition for the other, or the guarantee, systemic guarantee for the other. Federalization could mean a lot of different things, but what they actually want is some kind of structural element in Ukraine's 
state structure, political system that would reassure Russia that there would be a political force domestically in Ukraine that opposes a full integration into Western structures and that would have the power and the right to make its voice heard and be, well, maybe more powerful than actual its representation in the population would reflect. And we've seen that kind of Russian proposal before when in the, the debate about Moldova and Transnistria and uh, Russia didn't really succeed in that. One key problem from, from the Russian perspective on the Ukrainian side is that they feel President Poroshenko has not done enough or said enough to signal that he would be willing to give basically Russian speakers or, or give Russian interests more weight politically, domestically. And I think short of that and without that, I think it's very unlikely that Moscow would back down. Okay, so Neil, I mean, we're obviously some way from an agreement on those lines at the moment. Is it conceivable that that's where we get to eventually, either because Kiev agrees to it of its own accord or because there's a kind of broader Western consensus that that's what ne- that that's an acceptable deal and that's what's delivered? I think there would need to be a broader Western consensus and involvement in the talks. No, no one wants to determine these matters, decide these matters above the heads of the Ukrainian people or the Ukrainian leadership. But I think we are talking about issues such as Ukraine's status, whether it will join NATO or not, or, or retains the right to join NATO or not, which cannot be determined or guaranteed by Russia and Ukraine alone. Now, clearly, the, there is a lot of reluctance and squeamishness among Western capitals about being seen to return to a kind of era of great power politics where these decisions are made about the fate of peoples by a small group of leaders meeting together in a, in a room. They also don't want us to be seen to uh, reward bullying by Mr. Putin. But I would agree that uh, with, with Catherine that Russia's been pretty clear about what it wants. Certainly it's set out its negotiating position. I don't think it could expect to, to get all of those things, but it's a negotiating position. Some of them might be uh, deliverable, others, uh, others perhaps not. One thing I would say, though, is Russia has made life much more difficult for itself by annexing Crimea. If it hadn't annexed Crimea, I think the West w- would have been much more able to contemplate perhaps reaching some agreement on military neutrality, no NATO status for Ukraine. Russia's action on Crimea, which is seen as uh, contravening international law and as uh, compromising Ukraine's territorial integrity, has made it a lot more difficult to reach that kind of settlement. Okay, so Neil Buckley here in London. Thank you very much indeed. And thanks also to Katrin Hiller in Moscow. That's it for this week. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellincat.com.